Welcome everyone. In today's episode, we're speaking with the Vice President of BrainSpring's Educator Academy, Lori Wagner. And so I would say to teachers, you know, how miraculous is it that we have the power to literally change the brains of the students that we're teaching? Lori received her BA in elementary education from California State University, Northridge. She taught third through sixth grade for Los Angeles Unified School District and has tutored students in reading in grades K through 12 and adults. In 1993, she joined BrainSpring as a tutor. Lori is the mastermind and creator of BrainSpring's doubly accredited Phonics First and Structures Orton-Gillingham programs. She also supports its implementation in schools and districts nationwide. Since 2004, she has served on the board of directors of the International Multisensory Structured Language Education Council, IMSLEC, which accredits multisensory language programs at the teaching and therapy levels. Lori is the 2020 recipient of IMSLEC's Etoile Dubard Award of Excellence, which is awarded annually to a person who meets the ideals, professionalism, and dedication exemplified by the life of Etoile Dubard. Thanks so much for joining us, Lori. Yay! Thank you, Asterisk. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Esther, and everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. This is such an exciting new venture. Uh, 27 years ago, when I started all, all my journey with BrainSpring, I never would have imagined this day. <laughs> We're so happy That's you awesome. came to join <laughs> us so that we could pick your brain and interview you. Uh-oh. <laughs> Scary. <laughs> Well, Lori, first of all, we're so excited that you came to join us today, and I'm so excited to pick your brain a little bit and hear more about you, because there are so many things about you that I, I've worked with you for quite a bit, but I don't know about you that I'm so interested in. So the first thing I kind of want to dig into is what did the educational world look like um, when you first started teaching in regards to dyslexia intervention, and how did that bring you to BrainSpring? Well, Katie, that was quite a long time ago, so I'm gonna have to do a lot of thinking, right? <laughs> uh, I started no. uh, at California State University in the 1980s, and in thinking back on that time, I really only remember hearing dyslexia mentioned one time. I mean, literally one class, one day, was about kids who didn't read like the average student. And, and that was one of a few different conversations, but that was really the only time I could think back to dyslexia. It was just characteristics. There were no teaching ideas, nothing really presented about what to do about it, just that we should know that dyslexia wasn't in existence and we might run into it in our classroom maybe. Um, and really in the education community at that time, many people still thought it didn't exist or that it was a medical condition, not an educational uh, situation. So it didn't need an educational response. It was just thought to be medical. Um, subsequent to that, uh, not terribly long ago, I heard someone with something I thought encapsulated it. They said, yes, it is a medical condition. We know it's neurobiological in origin, but it's probably the only medical condition with an educational treatment. Mm. And that really, That's awesome. yeah. mm -hmm. that struck me. Right. Because we can't treat it with pills, can't do any kind of therapy other than teaching in the way the dyslexic 
learns in order to reach them. So I thought that was a profound thing that stuck out in my mind. But really schools mm -hmm. at that time, again, this was the 80s and into the early 90s when I was teaching and uh, or the late 80s, schools didn't even acknowledge the word. It shouldn't, it wasn't part of the conversation. It shouldn't appear in documentation. They would talk about learning disabilities, but really not engage in anything related to the word dyslexia. Do you think that was because there wasn't a lot out there about it? And so they were afraid of, if they mentioned it, they wouldn't have the answers or that, why do you think that was that you weren't supposed to really talk about it? Well, I do think that it was because we didn't have the knowledge we know we have now. There's been so much research done in the last 20 years. We've had the ability to look at the brain while it's reading through functional MRIs and so much more of science has really given us insight into it that we didn't have at the time. And, and at that point, now I wasn't a special education teacher, but from my colleagues, what I gathered was they really taught reading kind of the same way we all taught reading in the gen ed classroom, just maybe a different pace, maybe less assignments, less depth, but there wasn't, did not appear to me from anybody that I knew in education to be a different way of teaching. It was all pretty much the same. But I think the part that I appreciate now that I didn't know at the time is that behind the scenes, there was this whole army of tutors and educational therapists who privately were receiving uh, Orton-Gillingham training. And remember, it's been around since the 1930s and 40s. And so there was this whole army of these people that not only had the training, but they were reaching all those dyslexics. So despite the challenges that might've been existing in the education community and the schools, we had all these people behind the scenes who were making a difference. And so that, mm -hmm. I always look back at that and think, I wish I had known it at the time. And we do hear that a lot in trainings. Gosh, I wish I knew this 10 years ago, 15, 25 years ago. And I just feel like those of us who receive that kind of knowledge, I guess, in the beginning are really lucky to have received it so early. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Definitely. Even those of us that graduated college in the 2000s and beyond still kind of befuddled. What? I didn't learn that? Crazy. Exactly. So then how did that, so you were teaching out in California then how did that kind of lead you? How did that even come about and lead you to BrainSpring? I've never asked you that before. <laughs> so this will be a surprise for you and maybe yeah. for others. Um, so yeah, I was teaching in Los Angeles. And at the time, my husband had moved out to follow a job to Michigan. Never imagined myself living in Michigan, but I followed. And Teaching jobs at that time were in that cycle of not being very plentiful. So as I was looking through ads to pursue a teaching job, I uh, this was in 1993, I saw an ad for an Orton-Gillingham tutor. And I didn't even know what that term meant, but I saw the tutor part and I thought, okay, that sounds interesting. And there was a little description. So I called up and uh, eventually got an interview with BrainSpring's founder, Evelyn Slagen. And she, through the interview demonstrated this process, this Orton-Gillingham process of learning or of teaching. And I was 
intrigued. And then she wanted me to train in it. Now at the time I had to pay for it. So I was a little skeptical about going for a job that I had to pay to be trained. But um, she encouraged me to research Orton Gillingham. She wrote down that and a couple of people's names. Now, of course, at this time you couldn't go on the internet when you got home and research anything. So I had to wait, go to the library and check out some books. And as I'm reading about this, I thought, this is really intriguing and really excellent, but why have I never heard of this? I mean, I went to a great school, I had a great education, I've been teaching for a number of years and had no idea that this process even existed. Um, So I was lucky enough to get trained with Evelyn who wrote our initial training program after she had been tutoring and had been trained through another organization similar to ours. Um, And I was just, blown away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As soon as I took the training, I thought, oh, this is fascinating. And, and this is the work I want to do because I didn't have a teaching job. There were three tutoring rooms. Maybe we had five tutors at the time. And I was really excited to be part of that. And of course, today we have eight tutoring centers. We have an online tutoring program and we have about 90 tutors. But at the time, it was small. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I took the training, I also knew I wanted to be a bigger part of the organization. So I'd show up early for my tutoring appointments and I'd kind of hang around the office and I'd listen to Evelyn talking to parents who were calling about getting help for their children. And eventually that actually morphed into teachers calling us because they would see their kids in the surrounding communities using our strategies in the classroom. And we'd get calls every once in a while saying, hey, what is this? I Tell me more about this. I want to learn how to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's interesting. You know, Lori, I remember, um, (laughs) I remember I I was looking through the paper because I I had just had Lydia, my daughter, who's now 24 years old. And and she, she actually, she was about a year old and I was ready to move on. I had been teaching high school, but I, I answered an ad in the newspaper from Brainspring for tutoring. And so we remember newspapers. Yes, remember <laughs> newspapers. So I I answered the ad, I sent my application, sent my resume, whatever. And I remembered getting a phone call one day from a very articulate, very, very knowledgeable person, you, it was you. <laughs> um, so I got this phone call and you explained the whole thing to me. And I I felt just the way you did, the way you just explained it. It's like, what? What is what? I, this sounds amazing. And then I was told that I had to pay this uh, kind of a lot of money to be trained. And I, and I went, oh, it's a scam. Never mind. <laughs> and so I, I was thinking, oh gosh, I don't, I don't even, I don't have that much money right now to be able to do this. And I talked to my husband and said, she sounded so good, and it was so. I, I really believe it's legitimate. It really, really is. And, <laughs> I, I want to do it, but, it, you know, there's just, I just was really torn. Well, I did it and, and sat through that training with you and Evelyn. And again, that, I mean, that changed my life too. So it's, it's amazing how we had similar experiences when you're first hearing about this, because I had never heard of it either. That's It makes yeah. me laugh because the person you talk to makes such a big difference. Yeah. Because <laughs> Lori was so passionate and so you know, you wanted to do it. And oh, then after yeah. you take the class, it's even more so. Yeah. But you talk about scams. 
I'm so glad that we changed our ways <laughs> no, because I found the ad on Craigslist and I go. remember looking at it and I'm like, uh, is this, is this legit? Yeah, <laughs> and, funny? And so I'm so glad that we changed our ways because it doesn't look like a scam anymore. I know. Well, I guess well, let me clarify what, um, <laughs> at the time we were providing the training and people were purchasing it right. just mm -hmm. like they do today. Right. However, now when we hire our own instructors and our own tutors, we provide the training to them and then they work for us and get paid. Yes. And so it's, um, but when you first hear that and it's something you've never heard of before, right. I think that, that was the big part to me was I've never even heard of this. Why would I want to start buying a training? <laughs> right. right. And, and I, <laughs> I was at the time where they were paying for the training. So it, yep. it was a little easier for me to show up, but I also was like, this better not be in a dingy parking lot. That I show up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that just goes to show you the, the strength of the program, because I mean, yeah. all you need to do is just listen to somebody talk about it one time and, and realize that, you know, it is, it is absolutely legitimate and based mm -hmm. in research and, and uh, really, really effective. It, it didn't take long at all. I mean, it was, I'm so glad that we all answered those ads. I'm very glad right. about exactly. that. How many times yeah. do you hear from people who have taken it that this was the best professional development oh, that yeah. I've ever received? Yeah. This is so eye-opening. Yeah. And often from teachers who've been teaching for years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they've had a lot of PD in their yeah. past. And when they single it out as the best experience yes. and wish they had had it 20, 30 years ago, that's, mm -hmm. that's really a, a, an important realization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I thought this was going to be a summer tutoring gig. I was like, oh, I have my students. I'm going to go do something in the summer. And then I was mm -hmm. like, whoa. Like all our teachers are the <laughs> best program ever, but then, oh, I couldn't use it in my classroom. Anywho, mm. yep. <laughs> Hi, Lori. Hello. I just always love talking to you. <laughs> Make me smile. All right, so what changes have you personally witnessed in dyslexia education in the past 30 years? Ooh. 30 years. Oh my. <laughs> well, as, as I said, I went through the university in the early 80s, and that was a time when whole language was sweeping the nation. And New York and California were sort of the guinea pigs. Schools in the New York districts and in the California districts were embracing whole language under the premise that reading is acquired just like speech. So if we surround mm. our students with books, if we read to them, if they're exposed to reading and literature and engaging stories that they will just learn to read. And it sounded so promising. Mm. And so all of my university emphasis on reading was towards that. And it was wonderful because great qualities of children's literature came out at the time. We were loving reading stories to kids. That's probably one of my most favorite things to do to this day is to read to, to kids. However, it also meant that reading started to become unattainable to 20% of this population, anyone who struggled to read, students with dyslexia. So 
it had its pros, but it had a lot of drawbacks. In fact, where I taught in California, the governor embraced this so fully that he really moved the education system to embracing only whole language, go down that path with everything we had. And at that time, California on national tests, they would be the second top, first, second, third state. Our state was way up there. 10 years later, so right about the time I was ending my teaching career there, 10 years later, we were in second to last place of all of the states across national mm. tests. And that at that time, we everybody was starting to realize that you can't just be all of one thing or all of mm -hmm. another, and that just embracing the literature side did not make a reader. So he did a 180 and we started, the state started recovering and, and doing much better and becoming near the top mm -hmm. again. Then I remember in the 1990s reading uh, an article that kind of made that whole 1980s piece make sense. The article was called The Whole, H-O-L-E, in Whole Language. Mm -hmm. And it was answering the question is, what is the whole? What is the H-O-L-E in whole language? And it was that somewhere along the line, the structure of language, teaching the skills, the phonics skills, the decoding and encoding piece, that kind of fell to the side. It was actually part of whole language, but it fell to the, to the wayside and we kind of lost touch with that. In fact, teachers literally would teach phonics, they would close the blinds, they didn't want anyone to know that they were teaching the phonics part of language and not just the literary side. So that kind of in my opinion, it morphed into a time where our struggling students were in that wait and see, we'll keep an eye on them, we'll fix it later. And it really ended up becoming a wait to fail model for mm. kids that were struggling, dyslexics, learning disabled, even just general struggling leader, readers. Mm. So that was a, a really difficult time, at least for me, mm -hmm. not having the tools to do anything about it. But Fortunately, so if we kind of mm -hmm. move through the years, we've had a lot more steady progression to, to really understanding how to teach all students to read. In 1999, Louisa Motes wrote another great piece, a document called Reading is Rocket Science. And I thought that was the most brilliant, mm -hmm. brilliantly titled piece that I could have imagined. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if any of you remember reading that but it was being passed we to, around. Didn't we used to have pamphlets? Yes. Yeah, we used to pass that out at trainings. We yeah, did, yeah. because at the time, uh -huh. and now when we first started training teachers, we actually had to sell them on the idea that teaching phonics was okay to do and that it was helpful. So we did, mm -hmm. we gave that out to our um, people taking our courses. But what she explained mm -hmm. and opened our eyes to understanding is that learning to read is a very complex process and therefore teaching reading is a very complex process. Mm -hmm. And you may also recognize the name Marianne Wolf. She's another favorite guru of mine in the reading yeah, realm. Yeah. Um, her books are wonderful. And if you want to read research, that's also an engaging read, not hard and heavy, mm -hmm. get a book by Marianne Wolf. But I remember mm -hmm. learning from her that reading is not like speech. It's not a natural process that you just acquire by being surrounded. So it's the process of mm -hmm. speech is encoded in our brain for tens of thousands of years. Reading is something that's been around for what, mm -hmm. 200, 250 years or so. So our brain was never designed mm -hmm. to read. It's actually a miracle that we learned mm -hmm. to read at all. 
And she said, I'll probably get the number wrong, but something like 17 different areas of the brain are involved in learning to read. And none of those areas were designed for reading. And so if yeah. even one area goes awry, the whole process can fall apart for us for a student that just struck me that we were really on the wrong path with that whole language by looking at it as if it was the same as learning to talk when you were talking about teachers having to close their blinds and just because it had to be so hush hush if they were teaching phonics my very first teaching job one of the teachers that i worked with i was a special educator and she was a second grade gen ed teacher and she was fiery still one of my favorite people in the whole world and she's retired now but she had been a veteran teacher at the time and she goes i don't care what anybody else is doing what are they going to fire me <laughs> i am doing this phonics <laughs> and she was teaching an orton gillingham program and she said it makes such a big difference and everybody else was doing something different in their classrooms and she refused mm. to follow follow and I remember going Rebel. yeah it, she was and she still is she's hilarious too and I remember going to her classroom and seeing this happen and soon enough all of the scores in her class were higher than everybody else's and kids were really enjoying reading still too and soon after that everybody yeah. got trained yeah. in Norton yeah. Gillingham and she said this works I know it does they told me I can't do it I'm doing it and I was like, well, good for you yeah. for leading the way, you know? Well, I think it's very fortunate that people say the wheels of education move slowly. Maybe not quite <laughs> as slowly as the government, but they move slowly. And I think it's a good thing that we've seen, or at least I've seen over those 30 years of being in the field and thinking about dyslexics and kids struggling to read is there are a lot of changing views and it's people like the, your colleague that really made that happen. Mm -hmm. Kind of the proof is in the pudding. And so, you know, now we approach things like early prevention. We teach skills directly in K2 grades. We don't have to close our blinds. Everybody's able to do that. Mm -hmm. And we know why it's important. And early intervention for struggling readers, no more wait to fail. We start to address their needs as soon as we find that they need some sort of support. And even, thank goodness, we're improving teacher preparation. So we're seeing colleges and universities starting to embrace and wonder about how they can incorporate this kind of a process, an Orton-Gillingham multi-sensory structured teaching process in teacher certification programs. So we're still not where we want to be, but, you know, as Katie mentioned earlier, every course I ever taught for BrainSpring, I had a, one, if not more teachers come up and say, mm -hmm. why didn't they teach me this in the, in the university? Why are we not mm -hmm. doing this with all of our kids? And, you know, now we see states and districts actively seeking out professional development in Orton-Gillingham programs and wanting their teachers to have that knowledge and change and you get movements that are catalysts like decoding dyslexia and they're pushing dyslexia awareness and, and education to the forefront. And even now the science of reading movement that seems to be sweeping our educational communities, it just supports everything that we've been doing in BrainSpring and in the Orton Gillingham community for not 30 years, but for mm -hmm. almost 90 years. And now people recognize how important it is to empower teachers with all the knowledge they need to make 
sound reading, instructional decisions. And really those mm -hmm. are exciting changes. Mm -hmm. every, every 10 years or so, I think it can't get more exciting and then it does. Yeah, and I do see teachers after they take the training too, not only are they, they saying it's so useful, it to them, they'll say mm -hmm. it's invigorating. They get excited again to teach because they're having so many problems in the classroom and they go, I can do something about this now. And they're like, I, I am just so excited mm -hmm. to get started and do this. And I love, yeah. I love that feeling, but I love seeing think, it in yeah. other people too. I think we lose, unfortunately, I think we yeah, lose absolutely. a lot of teachers because of this exact thing. They don't feel empowered. They don't feel like I know exactly how to teach my kiddos how to read. I remember when I graduated college in 2006 um, as an elementary school teacher, they, the first thing they told us our last year before we graduated, they said, 50% of you will not continue in teaching. And I was like, wow, okay, glad I got this degree. Cheers, awesome, okay. So that stuck with me <laughs> my first you know, couple years. And it sadly, it made sense until I found Brainspring and Orton Gillingham, it made sense to me. I'm like, I don't feel effective. Most of my fifth graders don't know how to read. What am I going to do? Yeah, I think that's a yeah. good word for it is feeling effective. And that's 50% of the teachers right there. If you don't feel like you, if you have the passion, but if you don't feel like you're being effective, that's going to create a problem where you don't want to go right, to work anymore. Right. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I think Lori kind of already covered this, but just listening to the passion behind, you know, your, all of your experience and, and what you do, you know, the question is what is behind your drive to create Orton Gillingham programs. And I think that, that you've said it, you know, that you, you're so excited about it and you know that it works, but, but can you expand on that? Lori, what is, what is behind that drive to create these programs sure. that you do? Well, it's interesting because, 30 plus years ago when I came out of, uh, or 30 more, <laughs> 40 now, uh-oh. Um, however long ago it was when I came out of school, out of the university and into the teaching world, I came out and had no idea how kids learn to read. I mean, how is it possible? I went to a school that's excellent. It's well known for turning out teachers. And yet I thought, wow, there was nothing about how to teach kids how to read. And there was also nothing to tell me how they even learned it in the first place. So we, we looked at different reading curricula, but we didn't really delve into any of that sort of knowledge that you need to be a good educator, I felt. So the one thing I knew when I graduated was I did not want to teach primary grades because I knew I could follow a teacher's guide, but I felt so <laughs> ill-equipped to teach reading that I literally would not interview for a job unless it was third grade and up. Mm. Because in my naivete, I figured, well, then they'll all know how to read by that time. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even because I was afraid of dealing with kids who had dyslexia or struggled to read. I just felt like I wouldn't mm -hmm. understand the process the way it needed to be understood. Yeah. And so it wasn't, it wasn't until I took the brain spring training, the Orton Gillingham training, and it was like my light bulb moment, you know, those few times in your life where you just see something so clearly. And it was like, this is the me missing piece to the puzzle, the golden mm -hmm. ticket, keys to the kingdom. And I knew I'd been a good teacher. In fact, I knew I'd been a very good teacher. But at that moment, I started thinking back to all the kids mm -hmm. who struggled to read. And I, I never taught lower than third grade. And in fact, 
when I taught third and fourth grade, they were gifted students, but I still had kids who struggled greatly with reading. So I could look at them and think, if yeah, I had only yeah. known this at the mm -hmm. time, how, how could I have affected them and made a better outcome mm -hmm. for them? And, you know, we know that teachers' greatest desire is to help kids and that reading is the key to success. So every teacher deserves to have the best mm -hmm. tools available to them. And every kid deserves to have a teacher who understands the entire process of teaching mm -hmm. reading to all kids, not just dyslexic or LD, mm -hmm. but all kids. And then we create a winning environment, a winning mm -hmm. outcome for everybody. And spoken like a true educator, right? Immediately when you have this training, thinking about how you could have done better in those kids that you feel like you failed, even though you didn't fail them, but it's the perfectionists and, and educators to yeah. immediately think of those kids. I hear it all the time. And, and that's what I thought of when I took the training. I'm like, oh, I could have done this, mm -hmm. you know. It's kind of that powerful saying that I hear more and more, when you know better, you do better. Right, mm -hmm. right. And it's not, it's not that teachers don't want to be doing these things. They just don't have the knowledge mm -hmm. Fortunately, that is changing. The landscape of, of teacher training is changing, yes. like we talked about. So it's not for lack of desire or passion. And, and I'm sure I did everything I could in the moment mm -hmm. for those kids, but it was so easy to look back and say, I could have done this. That kid was dyslexic and I didn't realize it. Mm -hmm. That kid needed multisensory. That kid just didn't know how to decode yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm glad it's changing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I am curious about this too, because now that you have told us about how you came about with BrainSpring and how did, how did, you know, starting to work with BrainSpring evolve into creating an Orton Gillingham program? How, how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, First of all, as I mentioned, I, I was trained by our founder, Evelyn, and Evelyn is a phenomenal trainer. She had taken courses in Orton-Gillingham. She had tutored students, phenomenal trainer. I was trained by her. And then, as I said, I would hang around until eventually she just hired me. <laughs> um, and one of the things she wanted me to do was to kind of help organize the training because at the time she was just training one or two people. And then we started growing a little bit and teachers started asking us about it. So I would observe her train. And I noticed that every time she trained, things were taught, taught in a different order. They were presented a little differently. We would go on tangents. And I thought, if we want to replicate this, we need something more consistent. She always got to the finish line, no problem. So I observed and I wrote down everything she said and everything she did. And I always say, you always stand on the shoulders of those who came before you. So certainly my development of the programs and the training, I was standing on her shoulder. And I also then expanded and looked at other Orton-Gillingham programs and read the research at the time. And one of the biggest things was I attended the IDA conference every year. So since 1994, I think I've only missed twice. Mm -hmm. Um, so you, you never stop learning and, and developing a program like this, it's not a static thing. It really is something that is always having to go through continuous improvement uh, as we learn more. So you're never done learning 
Therefore, the curriculum can never be done mm -hmm. being improved or changed as we learn new things. And so that was one of my goals is to make sure that we're always being responsive um, to the needs of the teachers. And originally when we started training teachers, we only trained special ed teachers. That seemed to be the niche for, for the program. Um, but then we started getting more questions and I started thinking, well, how can we move this beyond just kids who had dyslexia or learning differences in reading and how do we expand it so that kids get the benefit of this even though they may not carry a label that gets them to that level of intervention. So I visited teachers that were using our program in special ed scenarios and then I started kind of taking my own background as a classroom teacher and thinking about how could we move that into the gen ed classroom and provide this. Um, so really my biggest source of inspiration and motivation are the teachers that we serve and they're they're the ones who graciously invite us in the classroom even to this day and they share ideas so they're really the catalyst for all the aspects of our program that change over time that plus research and they've been so inspiring to me that i always want to try to bring a better version of everything to them as we move forward but you had such a good perspective of being a classroom teacher and bringing it to the classroom because you knew that everyone would benefit from it and then you're meeting the needs of those kids who are kind of in between also you know so you were the right person to bring it to the classroom <laughs> and that way you had a good perspective so Lori, what does the process look like um, in regards to receiving accreditation? Because we know we're accredited by two organizations. Um, and I would imagine that would have been, or that is, a lot of hoops to jump through. So what does that kind of look like? It, it really is. And, and I'm glad that it's not just something that's handed out light-handedly. It's, it's something that you really have to be motivated to become accredited, and then you have to really do a lot of looking at your own course, your own process, your own um, development, and make sure that you meet these highly stringent requirements. We were accredited uh, our first time initially in 2003 through IMSLIC, and it really, they, they told us that going through the accreditation process would be eye-opening, and it really was, and at the time we were still a young company, a young organization, and they wanted to look at what you're teaching, they want to look at how it's taught, and then who's doing the teaching. And so we had to look at all those aspects. It's a threefold process. So first you submit an application, which is several pages long with lots of detailed responses that you have to give because the organization wants to make sure it's even worth everyone moving forward. You have to be kind of on the right path. Then after that, you submit an entire notebook of responses to questions and how you meet all their criteria, not only educationally, but the structure of your organization. Are you a viable program? Do you have the right personnel? So we submit all of that. That's reviewed by another committee. And then the third step is they send a three-person team out for a three-day visit, and they come to your, your site, your program site, and they verify that everything you've said in your application and everything you've said in your submission of your program is accurate. They interview people, so about 10 or 12 people 
holding different positions in the organization or interview people who've graduated, people who are currently taking your course. So it's really quite rigorous. And as I say, I really find that that's probably the most important aspect to accreditation is you know that a, a program has met all of these stringent requirements. And as a result of that, I ended up joining IMSLIC and becoming a board member since 2004. And so I'm able to keep my, my finger on the pulse of change in the arena as it, uh, as it grows. And then later, um, IDA also became an accrediting body and they looked at IMSLIC's process of accreditation and they then brought all of those programs in under their accreditation umbrella as well. So that just verifies that what we're doing is the right thing to be doing. And it also allows us to certify individuals who've completed our requirements in our program. So I think it kind of comes full circle. Mm -hmm. I remember when those ladies came. They, they, <laughs> I remember it. I, it was very intimidating. Yeah. It was scary. They actually sat in and watched. I think I, they sat in one of my classes and watched me train. They were just ever present for those few days, really serious. And it was, uh, you know, it's a big deal. It was a really big deal. Was, no stone goes unturned. No, which, not at all. Yeah, which like Lori said, that's, that's a good thing. You know, yeah, then you really know one. that you really deserve that accreditation. Yeah, They're not yeah. letting just anybody obtain that. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I met some kiddos at one of our learning centers. I'll never forget this, this student, he was in the third grade at the time. And um, when they came in, they were really bumming because he still wasn't reading. And I said, Oh, okay, tell me a little bit about your son. And they said, Well, you know, we heard a lot of good things about you, but we did Orton Gillingham in the past, and it didn't work. And I was like, Oh, well, just out of curiosity, like, you know, what program was it? And I, I did my research and that program he had had paid so much money for had only one little sprinkle, one little part of Orton Gillingham, but the guy was calling it an Orton Gillingham program. So this poor family was spending, I can't even imagine how much money and little third grader still isn't reading. So that's where I explained the importance of, you know, using a program that's accredited and what mm -hmm. that entails. And he made significant gains because anybody can use it you know yeah call it whatever they right. want but you need somebody looking over your shoulder to make sure you're doing it with mm -hmm. fidelity mm -hmm. and I, I think we're mm -hmm. starting to see maybe the tail end of anybody just being able to say i know orton gillingham because now there's so much higher level of awareness among parents, teachers, administrators, universities. So I think that now that accreditation is ever more so important and it sets apart programs and sets the certification sets apart individuals who've really committed themselves to being the best at what they do. And I know this wasn't, we weren't actually on air or recording at the time, but Lori and Esther were talking, this is totally off topic, but uh, about how you guys met and you did say it in here a little bit, but Esther, you had said, and Lori, I talked to you on the phone and then you did my training. Yeah. And yeah. I don't think Esther, you know, that you were in my training. You trained what? me. Do you remember that? No, I I did? Yes. Well, no, <laughs> yes, didn't. you were in the back and Sarah was the one doing the training and you oh, were observing. observing. You were observing yes. Sarah. And I remember 
doing that. You were in there. I was in ah. there. But it's kind of fun to hear that Lori, yeah. you know, trained you and, you know, it just yeah. keeps yeah keeps it yeah. going but well it, it is very cyclical it's about passing the torch mm -hmm. about bringing new people in to continue the legacy and i i feel like teachers sometimes will say well don't they will ask me didn't you don't you miss being in the classroom and i would say i do i i do miss being with the kids now i go in and coach teachers so i get to work with the kids but i also think of it this way is when I'm in the classroom every year, I can impact 20, 25 students a year times mm -hmm. however many years I might teach. Mm -hmm. But here, when I train a, a group of teachers, I may have 25 teachers I'm training. Mm -hmm. They're going to go out and impact 25 kids that year and then mm -hmm. 25 kids the next year. And then the new group of three teach. It just becomes this snowball effect mm -hmm. that every time we train teachers, we're giving them something so valuable. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I totally, in fact, I, I totally agree. Yeah, I, I was thinking something I often will tell teachers when we're talking about research and things and we, I, I mentioned how the functional MRIs were one of the first times that we could actually see the brain while it's reading. And so studies were done by Shaywitz and Edens and other people to look at the fact that structured sequential multisensory instruction changes how the brain operates while while you're reading and it causes so so that kind of instruction literally causes struggling readers brains to operate more and more like a skilled reader and so i would say to teachers you know how miraculous is it that we have the power mm -hmm. to literally change the brains of the students that we're teaching and so it's a, a powerful outcome and a great responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've, I mean, millions upon millions of kids have been affected by what we've Our done. little group. Millions yeah. and millions and millions. I remember I did the math when we, when we first started work with Mississippi, because I knew that it was going to be hmm. several years and those classes had 50 people in it. You know, mm -hmm. they were, each one of us had a class of 50 people and, they had classes of 25, 30 kids, and, and they were, there were some teachers that had just began their career, so they were going to be teaching for 20, 30 more years. Mm -hmm. And I did sit down and did the math, and I think I, it was millions of kids mm -hmm. just from the people that I trained. Right. And multiply yeah. that by all of you, you know, and it's, it is it's, it's what it makes really it, it it justifies my feelings when i like what Lori was saying like i i never thought i would leave the classroom i just love working with kids and mm -hmm. i was the opposite i was like kindergarten first second those were my you know mm -hmm. the group that i liked and i never thought i would leave but then that feeling of knowing wow I can actually meet the needs of more kids by doing this mm -hmm. is what kept me going with it. And right. I loved it. Right. And that, that ripple effect, that impact, whether it's on one person or 1 million people. I attended a conference. I don't remember which one it was, but they had a world renowned heart surgeon who was speaking. He was the keynote speaker and he was, he is severely dyslexic and he shared the most incredible journey with us Gosh. and he's someone who's invented countless life-saving procedures related to heart surgery and heart management and he was close to dropping out of school so close oh. he actually did drop out of high school but parents kind of pulled him back in and by the time he got to college he had both a passion to be in the oh. medical field 
and an absolute disdain for anything to do with school. And it was one teacher that recognized and understood that he was dyslexic to such a degree is that he had just literally no reading skills. And that teacher worked with him and pulled him through undergrad. Wow. And once he got to grad school, into medical school, he loved every aspect of it because it was now, he understood so much more about what he was reading because it was in his lexicon and his passion. And then I just, after that, I stopped to think like, what if that one teacher mm -hmm. didn't know about Orton Gillingham, didn't recognize dyslexia and mm -hmm. didn't spend time working with him? I mean, it not only would have changed the course of his life, but how many people would have been deprived of those heart-saving yeah. measures and operations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, that's amazing. And it's, so, that just that story just touched me so much. And then I had a my personal thought of touching lives were something I saw firsthand. I had a student who also was severely dyslexic, and I tutored him from second to fifth grade. And he hated reading, but he even more hated writing. He hated print with such a passion. And he was, had the most incredible imagination, told the best stories, but wouldn't write anything down. When we were doing dictation, I would say, just write the numbers one to, five, uh, one to 10 on your paper. And he would moan and <laughs> didn't want to do it. And I'd say, just write this one word. And I'd dictate it and he'd write it and I'd cross number 10 off. And then he'd perk up a little bit and I'd say, write one more word. And he'd write number two and I'd cross number nine off. And then I could get him to write five words. And I never forget asking him at one point, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, he said, I want to be homeless. So I never have to read and write again. Oh, how heart shattering oh, that was, but that was his goal. Now he left in fifth grade and I didn't see him. And his mother who was a teacher came back when he was in at the end of his high school career and he was just graduating. And she said, I just want you to know that he was the editor of the school paper for the last <laughs> two years. And he wants to be a writer. Oh my gosh. Up. Now that was not because of me. It was because I had a tool right. to empower him to see that he could move beyond everything he hated and could actually be successful in something. Aww. So, you know, what if, what if yeah. I didn't find Orton Gillingham? What if right. other teachers didn't find it? How that ripple effect is so yes. powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an awesome story. I love that. Yeah. I got chills, Lori. Mm -hmm. That one gives me <laughs> chills too. Me Both chills. of those. Literally when I tell those, it's like, mm. it's, you know, that just takes one person yep. to impact one other person's life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's wow. awesome. So there you have it. There we have it. But that speaks to your passion as a teacher and it carries over into what you're doing now, because had you not had that passion as a teacher, the difference that you you know, wouldn't have made with that student. And look at just by having a phone conversation with mm -hmm. Esther, you were so passionate, you convinced her to spend her own money to go do a training. <laughs> like, you know, that's pretty powerful, but it's Absolutely. true. I mean, when you meet you, when someone meets you, you can feel it, like that you believe in mm -hmm. it, that you have the passion for it and it's infectious. So, mm -hmm. well, I, I thank feel you, like if Lori. each of us can inspire one person, then we've made a difference. Yes. Yeah. So thank you for, thank you for spending time and listening to all my stories. Lori, yes. thank you for what, everything that you do. You're an inspiration. Yes, thank oh, thank you. you. It's nice to know that that 
passion will go through each of you and, and move forward and that this is a, a train that we can't stop. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, it's definitely infectious. And really, everyone doesn't have to love reading with a passion, but everyone should have the opportunity, the equal opportunity to decide for themselves if they want to or not. Mm -hmm. So as long as you can read, you always have that option. Mm -hmm. And not all of them are going to embrace reading and love to read. Mm -hmm. I'm sure my kid who wanted to be homeless probably doesn't read (laughs) all that much, Mm -hmm. but um, at least he got to the point where he could if he want. He could choose. To. Yeah, and it, and it goes deeper than just the reading. It's what you can acquire by reading. You can do what you want right. to do. You can form your own opinions of the world, but you have mm-hmm. to be able to read about it first. Yeah. yeah. Even just be independent, you know, reading bills. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's oh, yeah. a good thing. <laughs> even, even one's health. Uh, when, when we'll have conversations in class about why is it important to read, it's a health issue. Mm-hmm. And, and access to a job that gives you enough money to have a healthy lifestyle right just mm-hmm. simple basics that everyone should be afforded mm-hmm. so we're doing good work you guys yes keep it up and keep passing the torch and moving it forward yes yes so yes, yes, yes. thank you <laughs> all right bye 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 Lori. bye i think the biggest thing for me because they're so there's so much always to do and there's so many odds and ends and you get caught up with the logistics of in the business part of trying to keep materials updated and all this other stuff. But it's always good to have a conversation like that because it really reminds you of why you're doing what Mm -hmm. you're doing and speaking with Lori, which I, I've told her this, but I call her the professor. I think everybody <laughs> does. She's so knowledgeable and she is so passionate that she really does bring in other people and surround herself with people who believe the same mm-hmm. thing she does. And yes, she is my boss, but no, I don't have to say this right. stuff because she is who she is and her passion has really like none of us in this conversation would have jobs if it weren't for her. Mm-hmm. And she really reminds me of why I initially got into, mm-hmm. got into this and I'm doing mm-hmm. what I'm doing because I love mm-hmm. what I do. You know, what strikes me is that she is the brains behind our program. She knows every little minute detail about everything that we do. She knows research. She knows, you know, all of it. And on top of all that, she can organize all of us to be able to create. I mean, she's kind of, she's the one who motivates and puts teams together and says, this is what we're going to do next. So it's not just about knowing the program. She also has the talent to be able to Mm -hmm. facilitate creating all of these really great products that we have. She foreshadows a lot of need and she's able to see... Yeah, I mean, I, future of well, if this happens, yeah, then this, this, and this, and it's just like he sees the snowball effect before does. anybody else. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to know your stuff and not have the business part of it down. That's very common, you know, to really be really good at your at your craft, but then you have to hire somebody else to run the business, you know.
she does everything. Mm-hmm. She's doing all of it. And that's that's a takeaway that I, I kept thinking about that while we were talking to her, that she's just so well-rounded. And, and on top of all that, I mean, she would die if she were sitting here listening, listening to us right now. <laughs> she's so humble about it all. Yeah. And she's... She's such a connector in that way, too, mm-hmm. because when I first started working for Brainspring, the thing I noticed about her most was, well, first of all, she started the company with Evelyn, like with, you know, bare bones, nothing, really, but then created this curriculum. And we now have, what, five departments? Yeah. And she... She is those five departments. She's in every single one of them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, man, I have a full-time job and she's in all of mm-hmm. those. And then she still, when I first started working, would still call and say, hey, how's Jackson doing with going to school? I heard, you know, you told me last time he was having a hard time getting on the bus and going to school. Like, yeah. you know, a connector mm-hmm. in that way mm-hmm. and remembering things mm-hmm. that are like, how did you even remember that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, she, mm-hmm. she's been so empathetic. I just, I don't even have words. I mean, she's there for the ups and she's there for the downs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. it's rare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's really, she's very talented. I mean, I feel really happy to be associated with her. Mm-hmm. You know what I noticed tonight about, about Lori's story is it seems like all of us have kind of a common denominator where we were put into a position of teaching using whole language. Mm-hmm. And we all realized, oh, gosh, this is just not working. It's not my bag. Of course, it, it, it helps, but it's not like the core piece. We're missing something. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty interesting because I honestly didn't know how far back whole language went. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I mean, I learned it, you know, I was in college. I graduated in 2006. So that was really interesting and powerful to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I first heard that Lori got this award she actually told us only because her husband joe forced her to tell us she would never ever share that kind of information with us i'm so glad she did and i know she was really humbled because the people who were on the list that had received this before her i believe it's only been between 10 and 12 people she said to see my name mm. on that list of people was very humbling. And I'm like, well, you're already very humble. <laughs> but to think about it, you know, she was very humble. But what I thought about, it, I'm like, your name should be on that list of people. You have worked your tail off mm-hmm. and it's so well-deserved. Mm-hmm. It really is. That woman works harder and more than mm. any person I know. Mm-hmm. And she's so knowledgeable. She's my go-to. I'm like, oh, sure about that ask Lori mm-hmm. <laughs> it's Always. kind of this it's like a joke because I will often times say with the people I'm working with I'm like hmm ask Lori mm-hmm. and then because mm-hmm. she'll know yeah exactly so she's like a walking encyclopedia that way so I I was so happy for her so happy that Joe made her share and I think it's so well deserved oh I agree a hundred percent it was so awesome talking to her thanks guys have a good night bye you guys Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Love you.